welcome to the first episode of Neurotech Brain Bites. This is Manishka Maduri and Zoe Steiny Hansen, and we're students at the University of Washington. This podcast series follows the exciting neuroengineer research going on at UW and interviews the students and researchers who make this work possible. Each podcast will interview one person, dive deep into their research, and hear more about their experiences. So today, we're really excited to talk to Courtney Pascal. Courtney, could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your research, your advisors, and your interests? Of course. Hi, Manishka and Zoe. Uh, so I am a third-year graduate student in the bioengineering program at the University of Washington. I'm in the GRID lab, uh, which is a coordination between Rajesh Rao, a computer science professor, and Jeffrey Ogeman, a practicing neurosurgeon, and uh, Jeff Heron, who's a new faculty in electrical engineering. I am also an MD-PhD student, so I'm third year in my PhD program, but I'm about two years through the medical training program as well. So my research focuses on implanted neural devices, which are electrodes that are placed in human brains. So I deal in two platforms, a deep brain stimulation platform and an electrocorticography or cortical electrode platform. In deep brain stimulator work, I work intraoperatively, so in the operating room, while patients with movement disorders have small, almost like coffee straw, flexible electrodes tunneled down to a deep brain structure. Uh, we target things like the subthalamic nucleus and other thalamic nuclei, these um, small deep places in the brain that seem to control movement output. In the interoperative space, um, after the surgeon implants the electrodes, there's 20 minutes of research time where we can stimulate the brain, look at the way the brain responses. Sometimes even patients are woken up if they're essential tremor um, motor disorder patients, for example, will be woken up in the operating room. The other platform that I work with is in electrocorticography as well as stereo EEG electrodes. That platform is with patients with intractable epilepsy. So they have seizures that are no longer responsive to pharmaceutical intervention. They don't respond to drugs anymore for control. So one of the options that these patients have is to have their seizures mapped with invasive monitoring. So they undergo brain surgery and have electrodes placed either on their cortex, the surface of their brain, or also many more electrodes tunneled down to these deeper brain structures. In these patient populations, I can have up to a week of ongoing interactive human brain recordings. So in that patient population, I can do uh, some really cool things, which we'll talk about a little later, like develop a virtual reality game that allows us, the researchers, to alter, change, or control reality and watch what the brain does in response to that. That's very cool. So if I were to sort of sum it up real quick, um, it sounds like your research is very medically motivated. You have, I mean, obviously coming from MD-PhD background, but also just having a neurosurgeon as a professor. And the idea is to understand more about uh, patients with movement disorders. You mentioned like a essential tremor, and you're combining that with virtual reality to understand more about what's happening in their brain. Did I, did I get that about right? 
Yes. And I would say the, the medical motivation is both because I have this MD, PhD focus and the future of being ideally a physician scientist, but also um, in order to do this kind of research um, with humans, this in, invasive uh, kind of clinical research requires uh, neurosurgery. <laughs> so it, it will always, I think, for now have this a very sort of clinical element because you're dealing with a patient population um, who had enough, we'll say comorbidity, enough going on in their life that neurosurgery was their, their best chance and their best option. I will kind of throw out there as a teaser, one of the exciting things that we're seeing, uh, well, exciting for some in kind of more industry approaches to this invasive clinical monitoring is the soon to be commercially available Neuralink system. Elon Musk's venture is hoping to bring voluntary electrode implantation uh, into your neighborhood. Uh, the, the, you know, the future of science, if you will, in terms of these implanted devices may not be clinical in 10 years. Interesting. So if you were to sum up your research as a sci-fi novel, what would you, how would you describe it? So the VR side of what I do, um, I think would be best imagined um, with Ready Player One. And if you've uh, seen the movie or read the book, um, awesome, you probably know what I'm referring to. And if not, the general idea is that is a post-apocalyptic world where people find refuge by almost living in a completely altered virtual reality space. They'll put a headset on, um, they'll stand and walk on like an omnidirectional treadmill, and this virtual world is preferable and in some ways kind of more real than their real world. It's just, you know, escape. My research is, is like this Ready Player One alternate reality in that what I want to understand as a researcher is that in this altered space, the brain rapidly adapts. The idea that you can be, you know, walking around your room and in some sense, check in. Well, am I in the real world or am I in virtual world? That ability of the brain to shift modes in a way, to be in one mode real world and then another mode virtual world is a fascinating transition. Also in this idea of accepting a virtual world, even in the movie, in the books, Ready Player One, people can do really exotic and unreal things in the virtual space. Your physical body is not limited to what your physical body actually is. You can be 20 feet tall. You can be a thousand pounds. You could have 20 arms. Um, you could have no legs at all and, you know, fly around. And in the movie, but really some initial researchers even suggesting in real life, your brain's ability to say, oh yeah, no, no. That's about right. <laughs> we, yeah, you have 20 arms. We can work with that. It's actually really convenient. I miss them when I go back to the real world. Um, another analogy trying to think about brain in this altered state is in a dream. I think everyone has the experience where in a dream, something really unusual happens. Like, you know, you walk into a room and it's everyone from your past and everything's great. And then they suddenly turn into wolves and your brain in a dream is like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense because they were always wolves. That ability to accept, accept what it's presented um, is, a, is an interesting capacity of consciousness. 
and is something that we might have the ability to probe by intentionally making small changes and asking the brain uh, kind of to adjust to those and then watching the brain as it adjusts. Yeah, I think that's a very fascinating possibility for the future. And you also mentioned um, the commercial viability of things such as Neuralink in the future and how that was exciting. So I'm curious about what other things in your field that you're excited about. So in one of the projects that I have specifically proposed um, in this, this virtual reality space is using a, a fairly high-end virtual uh, VR headset, head-mounted display unit. I can very precisely track a person's movements while recording their brain controlling those movements. Um, in addition to controlling those movements and we can decode those movements, we could maybe use that neural control to, to drive what's called a brain computer interface or using the brain to directly output, um, we'll say command functions, interpreting directly from the brain to some sort of output unit like a virtual arm or a prosthetic um, or a little toy you know, vehicle that drives around. Um, that brain-computer interface is an option or something that I'll have the option to um, kind of explore in this virtuality space. I'm excited because I am among a host of researchers who are actively exploring this direct brain-to-output space. I think one of the futures that we will see both from clinically needed implants and this potential future of commercially optional implants um, is, the, is a revolution in the way we interact with our own brains. If thought to output can be mediated through a computational device, what our brain has active control over just became everything, everything connected with a computer, the internet of things we are now very intimately connected to. I think that's exciting. I think it's also um, will be challenging what we do with that capacity, what that means about ourselves, and then add to that that the kind of the research that I had mentioned, where in, you know the virtual reality space, we've identified already that the brain is very willing to adjust its concept of self. Give it a third arm; it doesn't take very long for the brain to accept having a third arm. So we have this a fluid identity in a biological sense. And it will be really interesting to see what we learn about that. And coming back to kind of a clinical understanding, what we can then apply to medical conditions where maybe that sense of self is disrupted. An easy example of that would be schizophrenia, where that line between reality and non-reality is very blurred and patients really uh, really suffer. And maybe these, these next steps, these next iterations, not only will improve, you know, prosthetic control, give us, you know, a different concept of ourselves, uh, help us understand how we define reality, but then also come back to a patient population that um, needs help in any of those categories. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I love the way that you're describing your work from the medical side, as well as just like the, the pure engineering aspect. And I just wanted to comment that you use this phrase revolution with the way we interact with our own brains. And, and I love that because I think that really brings highlights like what all of us are interested in um, in this field. Yeah, and revolutions can be uh, 
<laughs> disruptive. <laughs> it will be interesting. Um, just, just it's hard to predict. I think on this side of it, how different it could all be in fifteen years. Um, you know, why carry a phone if you just think to call mom? All right. Um, I know we could talk about the your research and all the amazing and exciting things and BCIs um, for like hours. But I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk more about your journey in grad school and what brought you to grad school. So what motivated you to go to grad school? A great question. And in my case, a very long and windy path. Um, so in brief, I started in physics in my first undergraduate foreshadowing um, in a applied physics. I worked with um, uh particle accelerators. I shot very little things that much bigger things to ask um, what the bigger things were made out of. And it was at that point in my life, this draw to understanding fundamental reality. Physics tends to lure in those that can't stop asking why. After my, my physics degree, I joined the military. In fact, I got my physics degree at the U.S. Naval Academy, which upon graduation comes with a commission. So I commissioned as an officer, went off to flight school. I flew for a little bit before having a very rare opportunity to shift kind of fields if I wanted to. And so I decided that uh, being a pilot, while it was probably the most amazing thing, um, that and amazing avoiding the word badass and so that has to be edited apologies baddest thing I would ever do um, I no I think that's an appropriate way of uh, <laughs> describing it I 100% agree um, there was this other calling again that why that kept tugging at the back of my mind and so I ended up going back to school and I had the option of getting a master's degree, which would maybe be a bit more of a traditional path after bachelor's or kind of completely renovating my undergraduate education and getting a second undergraduate degree. Um, that was influenced also by this open-ended question of, do I wanna be a doctor? And so in the process of getting my pre-medical requirements, I, for a few classes extra, could get a second bachelor's degree in neuroscience with a minor in electrical engineering because there was obviously so much free time in my schedule. And so I did that. I got a lot more research experience at that time and ended up having a kind of gap year while I applied to MD PhD programs where I worked in clinical trials looking at different drugs and interventions for patients with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Um, the decision to go to grad school was really always latent in that. I knew there was this interest to continue. There's an obvious extension of asking why about fundamental reality and tackling it from the, you know, equations and mechanics and statistical understanding of matter to asking about fundamental reality and going to really in some ways the more philosophical, well, that thing which calls all of this reality as far as I know um, is myself, is my brain. And so there's this actually very common bridge um, between physics and neuroscientists. Uh, many neuroscientists, senior in their field, actually started in physics. So an easy forward progression, grad school was kind of embedded in that. Um, the, the medical thing popped up because it's so interesting and that opportunity to, to intervene in someone's life positively uh, is something that I think most idealists, most scientists, long for and that medical component gives me the opportunity to do that on something more like a daily basis while the science which always takes so much longer um, develops and forms into something that can be passed off to the clinic yeah 
absolutely um, long path yeah, <laughs> many years <laughs> many years but you know at least <laughs> uh you're here for a reason so that's that's exciting, right? yeah my program is four years longer <laughs> it's an eight-year program the md phd <laughs> All right, a little bit longer then. <laughs> there's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> what tunnel? <laughs> this isn't just darkness. <laughs> uh, for our listeners out there, it's not all darkness. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but we do want to ask, you know, what surprised you about grad school? What didn't you expect when you got here? What have you learned about grad school in general? Sure, sure. Um, so about grad school, and I think maybe I had also skipped over the, you know, maybe getting to, to grad school parts. So if you'd like me to double back on that, just just ping me again. But surprising about grad school. So undergrad, and I did it twice, um, is very um, choose your own adventure, but there's a lot of structure. You know, you pick your classes, you pick your major, you pick your alternate foci, you pick your, you know, your minor. Um, but every time you make a decision, there's this structure that that kind of rushes in to facilitate you until the next decision is made. You know, there's a quarter structure, there's a year structure, there's, um, you know, a major structure. Grad school, and I didn't really understand this, is the, initially a little bit like that, that choose your own adventure with structure, but very quickly that structure is taken away. And that transition to from I have an idea and these are the limited choices to I have an idea and here's the entire field of options um, and how to, how to take your idea and move with it maturely, how to move with sophistication within your wheelhouse, how to evaluate what's the good place to start when you don't really know what to do. That process of grad school is really so much harder than I thought and takes so much longer and so I think it's very common to talk to grad students, you know, referencing that long dark tunnel, I didn't even know it was a tunnel. Um, there's a tendency for grad students in the middle of that process to feel absolutely overwhelmed and like they're failing and they're never going to get out of it. And I remind myself, <laughs> it's a common feeling. Um, but really there's something quite beautiful about the struggle of grad school. And I think it's not just in the effort of science. I think it's developing of the individual. Um, I didn't I didn't know that that was going to be part of the education. And it is maybe the point of the education of grad school. Yeah, it's a training a lot on how to think and how to, you know, stumble your way through a problem, through a long, undefined problem. <laughs> totally. That how to stumble is I think there might be something like wisdom in learning how to do that. So you talk a little bit about, you know, going through and, and trying to set the, this undefined problem, figuring out, you know, of these infinite possibilities, what to do. So what do you think it takes to be successful in doing that or even be a successful student in your field? Gosh, so I will caveat this, that I have not attained what I would call success. So you're, you're getting advice from somebody in the middle of it. And the best advice I was ever given was only take advice from people whose lives you want yours to look like. So you may not wanna take my advice, but here I am going to give it anyway. Um, I think 
I think what drives success in research um, is probably the same thing that drives success everywhere. You have to actually want to do what you're doing. And then you have to have a vision big enough that when you get lost in the weeds or the downturns that are inevitable in any venture, um, you can hold on to that as meaningful and worthwhile. I think in the field of research, um, it's believing that what you're doing influences something. It matters to the field of science. It matters to a patient. It, it matters more than the letters that will come you know, the PhD when you, when you finally reach the end of that tunnel, because I don't think that that can carry you through the real work of real research. And I think, again, my guess is that's true of everything you do in life. There is no smooth path and finding a way to maintain your motivation and your ability um, to provide structure, create structure to help you achieve your goals is is both what you learn and what's required to be learned for the field of being a scientist, the career of, of engaging life that way. And then also maybe what separates science from other things is you have to, I think, shoot out into the dark. Your goal has to be something not yet known. And then you are the one building the path to get there. You have to rely on everything that your field currently knows, but your vision has to extend beyond what's in sight. And that ability to hone a vision and update a vision as you go is, is the, the path of science. But you have to project off into the dark. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of a leap of faith in some sense in doing science and imagining that, yes, there will be, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and and th in thinking about this light at the end of the tunnel, I'm curious about what your possible plans are once you once you get through the MD, PhD and what's <laughs> what's next for you after that? It's funny. Well, I've inspired myself with this whole like launch into the dark and stumble forward. And so <laughs> I think uh, the PhD will be really relieving to have. Uh, it's a sense of uh, accomplishment and like a stamp of approval from other scientists. Um, in my case, I will do something of value. We'll say in this VR space and there's, there's um, a lot to be done, a lot of data to be collected and then really just a remarkable amount of options. Uh, the, the VR component is so alluring. Sometimes I wonder if I'll just roll from PhD into postdoc and like delay those last two years of med school. But whether I do that or not, I do eventually head back uh, to the clinical years of med school as an MD PhD student. And that is a, going to be a pretty dramatic culture shift uh, where I go from stabbing in the dark to ideally never doing that. <laughs> Stay in the nice, comfortable realm of what's known as best as possible and refine your diagnoses back to these, these places that medicine can intervene as much as possible. Um, and then from there, two years of clinical med, uh, medical training, and then on to a residency position for, for those thinking about MD-PhD or for those thinking about MD. Um, increasingly, doctors are, are kind of being invited into what used to be purely um, kind of pure scientist space. Um, the option for an MD only with MD only training to significantly contribute to, you know, clinical science and we'll say theoretical science is, is growing. So I'll head off to residency, I'll fit in research where I can, and then long-term, long-term, the idea is that I'll be a practicing doctor and a, a scientist running a lab. I think Physician scientists, for, for those out there who consider that in the course of your interviews, you will be asked, 
every interview, actually, every single one at an institution, if you have 11 of them, you'll be asked 11 times, um, why MD, PhD, why the combined degree? And the reality is that practicing physician scientists are almost, it's almost like they live, you know, 100% medical, 100% research. Um, what tends to give is that research side, you become a lab manager in many ways. You're the PI in the sense that you set vision, you acquire money, and you, you know, hopefully regulate a nice cohort of grad students who are very successful and independent. Um, so that vision component becomes very important when as an MD, PhD, you don't have the time necessarily to also write code and <laughs> edit papers <laughs> and show up to lab meetings. These things get very, you know, very tricky. Um, but, but really, I think that's the, the kind of, you know, leapfrogging in distance vision of what's to come. And that takes me to right around the age of 55. And then <laughs> who knows from there? <laughs> and then you'll still have your whole life to live, you know, so. Exactly. Well, to be honest, by that point in medicine, I'm pretty, I, I'm feeling like 130 is, is at reach. You know, that's a nice, reasonable length of life. Yeah. Yeah. Not even <laughs> middle-aged by 50 then, no. Yeah, you won't even have hit your midlife crisis by then. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to have your midlife crisis at 80? I mean, you could argue that you could just save your consciousness and put it somewhere else later, and that could be how you extend your life. Totally. Hope your hard drive never crashes. <laughs> well, yeah, then then you got problems. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Courtney, for your time. I hope that everyone enjoyed listening to our first podcast and found Courtney's story uh, very inspiring and her research inspiring. And if you would like to get more involved with research, please reach out to the Center for Neurotechnology or Neurotech at our website, and you can get more information there about how to get involved. And please let us know if you liked this podcast by liking us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube. Don't forget to take a bite with Brain Bites next time when we talk to the 2021 CNT Hackathon winners about their 48-hour hackathon experience. Until then, stay curious. This podcast was produced by the Neurotech Student Club at the University of Washington. Hosted by Manishka Maduri, Manju Anand, and Zoe Steiny Hansen. Edited by Michael Nolan. Music by Asad Beck. Cover art by Pavithra Rajeshwaran.